Speaking of families, um, we're going to go ahead and return our focus to the scripture today, this family that we've been looking at. And uh, the very first slide I want you to see is one that I showed you last week. It's got the, the family tree. And this is just for the folks like me in the room who, who need to visualize where we've been on these things, the visual learners in the room. We've been talking about this family beginning with uh, Abraham and Sarah, the patriarch and matriarch of this great family that the Bible uh, devotes so much to telling their stories. Uh, but Abraham and Sarah are gone. We're, we're going to be reading today from Genesis uh, chapter 27 and 28. And here we're focusing really on uh, a family of four that you see there near the bottom of the family tree. It's, it's the father, Isaac, the mother, Rebecca, and their two now adult twin boy sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the older twin, and as such, he, he should have been entitled to the lion's share of his father's estate, his father's inheritance. But in the story we read last week from chapter 25, uh, Jacob, the younger brother, made a deal with Esau while Esau was starving to death. And Jacob cheated Esau out of his inheritance. And we were all here aghast at Jacob's complete lack of ethics his complete lack of morality. He's a pretty naughty kid. Uh, but the Bible actually says there's a theological problem with that story. And the theological problem is that Esau didn't value the promises that God had made to his family. Esau, uh, weakened as he was, was willing to sell what God had in, in mind for him, in store for him. And the Bible says that was uh, a real problem with that story. Um, the other thing we need to know about this family of four is an issue that I just kind of glossed over last week in the text, but it's going to become very important to what we read today. And the issue is this. This is a family with deep, deep division and dysfunction. Anybody here, please don't put your hands up. If you came from a broken home with highly, highly dysfunctional people in your household, this story is for you. Because this is a family with deep, deep division. You can see the verse that I highlighted in the corner of that screen from Genesis 25, verse 28. It said, Isaac, the father, loved Esau, but Rebekah, the mother, loved Jacob. Just kind of a passing phrase in chapter 25, but oh, is that going to play out here in chapters 27 and 28. Each of the two parents had a favorite son, and they weren't shy about letting it be known. Genesis chapter 27, then, is, is one of the most famous stories about this deeply, deeply dysfunctional family. But actually, we're not going to take the time to read it together today. You might already know the story, but I'm just going to summarize it for you. Because the meat of what I want us to go through today is in chapter 28. So a quick summary of Genesis chapter 27 as you continue to look at the family tree there. In the ancient world, it would have been common for a father to gather all of his children together near the end of the father's life uh, so that he could pronounce a blessing over each one of them. We've already been talking about blessings today, right? In the ancient world, blessings and curses were very, very important things. And those words had, had meaning and significance to people. And so it was common that a father, as he approached the end of his days, would gather all of his children together in one place and speak a word of blessing over each one of them. And just as with the, the financial inheritance that we already talked about, it would have been common or expected that the oldest son would get kind of the disproportionate 
uh, blessing. His blessing would be greater than anybody else's. In Genesis chapter 27, Isaac, the father, is old and frail. He's this dad. His eyesight is gone. He's functionally blind. He knows that his end is coming soon, and so it's time to do the family blessing. It's time to gather his two boys up and give them the blessings. But Isaac bucks convention And he makes a secret plan with his favorite son, Esau. He makes a plan that he can give Esau his blessing when no one else is around. Rebecca overhears them making this plan. And so she comes up with a secret plan of her own. And so while Esau is out hunting in the wilderness, Rebecca convinces her favorite son, Jacob, to dress up like his brother and convince Isaac to bless Jacob instead of blessing Esau. They figure Isaac's too old and too blind to know the difference. Now, my dad had twin boys. He was not old and he was not blind, but he couldn't always tell the difference. And so when they, when they dressed up in each other's clothes, we might read Genesis 27 and go, how could he not know? But I can tell you in the Martinson family, this story tracks. Rebecca's plan works and Isaac ends up blessing Jacob in disguise when he thought he was blessing Esau. And when Esau finds out about it, he's furious. You can't take a blessing back. There's no backseas on blessings in the Bible. Once they go out, they're good. And Isaac says, hey, not a whole lot I can do about it. So Esau is furious. He says, first you stole my inheritance from me. And now you stole my blessing from me. He says he's mad enough to kill his brother Jacob. And so Rebecca, who loves Jacob so much, she comes up with a new plan. You see, Rebecca knew that it had always bothered Isaac that his favorite son, his boy, Esau, had married local Canaanite women. Esau actually had a couple of wives at this point. Uh, You see, Isaac wanted Esau to find a wife from their clan, from the extended family, just as you might recall Isaac himself had done. Um, But Esau didn't do that. He had taken women from the local tribes to be his wives. And that had always kind of bugged Isaac. And Rebecca knew that. And so she reminded Isaac that while Esau was, was already married, Jacob was a bachelor. Jacob was an eligible bachelor, and he didn't have any wives yet. Jacob needed a wife, and Isaac said, aha. So he says, Isaac, Isaac says, I've got a great idea. He thinks it's his idea, but really Rebecca's the one that planted it in his head. He says, I'm going to send Jacob off on a journey back to our homeland to find our kinfolk so he can choose a wife from, from the proper clan. And so Isaac sends Jacob away. Rebecca tells Jacob, look, I... I I tricked your dad into planning this journey for you. You go on this journey so you'll be safe from your brother Esau and you don't come back to this house until I send word that it's safe to do so. And that's how Jacob finds himself all alone in the wilderness in Genesis chapter 28. I want to read to you from Genesis 28 beginning in verse 10. Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. That was the homeland where he could expect to find some kinfolk. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp, and he stopped there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and to lay down to sleep. And as he slept, he dreamt of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven. 
And he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham, and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all the families on earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. I wonder how many of us would say today that we are currently in the midst of the most spiritually vibrant season of our entire lives. I wonder how many of us would say today, November 12th, 2023, this is it. This is the pinnacle of my relationship with God. I've never felt closer to him. I've never felt more in touch with his presence and his power as I do right now. Now, let me quickly say, if that's you today, I rejoice with you. I'm grateful for you. And it may be that that's where you're at right now. Hallelujah. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. But I'm willing to guess that the majority of us, if we were to raise our hands, would say, I'm operating somewhere below 100% today. I've had highs and I've had lows. I might be good. I might be bad. But I can tell you, this is not as good as it gets. I'm guessing that's what most of us would say. But I'm also willing to wager that there's folks in here who would say, actually, if I'm being honest, it's even worse than that. There are probably some in this room who would say, if I'm being honest, this might be one of the bleakest seasons of my life. Because it's been a long, long time since I've actually felt like God was fighting for me. God feels distant. And I feel forgotten and abandoned. Spiritually speaking, I feel like I'm all alone in the wilderness. You don't have to show your hands, but I'll bet that those words speak at least in part to a portion of us in this room today. And I want to be very, very quick to tell you today, if that's you, if you resonate with what I've just said, I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. Because I think the Holy Spirit wanted you to hear this story from Genesis chapter 28 today. And I think he wanted you to hear me say that God shows up in the wilderness. God shows up in the wilderness. Go ahead and put that on the screen for me, Robert. Jacob was in the wilderness and God shows up in the wilderness. Jacob was literally in the wilderness. He was on a journey. He was all alone. He was in a place where he had to sleep outside with a rock for his pillow because there wasn't even a Motel 6 to leave a light on for him. And more importantly than being in a literal wilderness, can we agree today that Jacob was also in a a metaphorical wilderness? Spiritually speaking, Jacob was in the wilderness. It didn't matter if he was in the lushest oasis in the Mideast. Spiritually speaking, he still would have been in a wilderness because at this point in his life, he was no hero of the faith. 
Uh, we read the rest of the Bible and, and we see that phrase again and again about God being the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Well, he's not the God of Jacob yet. He's in a dry point in his spiritual life. He's hardly a champion of godliness. Who is Jacob at this point? He's a liar and he's a cheat and he's on the run for his life. He had a toxic family with two parents who were willing to play the kids off on each other so they could get what they wanted. Oh sure, Jacob had heard stories about grandma and grandpa's faith, but those never seemed like much more than old people stories to him. People would say to Jacob, I'm sure, they would say, God loves you, God is for you, God has his hand on your life. But those were just empty words to Jacob. It seemed to Jacob that if God was real, he was distant and unconcerned. And then suddenly he wasn't. God wasn't distant. He was right there. God showed up in the wilderness. If you're in a spiritual wilderness today, like Jacob was in the wilderness, don't lose hope. Turn your eyes toward heaven and keep a watchful look out. Because God shows up in the wilderness. It's what he does. Read the rest of scripture and count how many times God shows up in the wilderness. Moses was at his lowest point in the wilderness and God showed up in a bush burned. Elijah, the prophet, was at his lowest point in the wilderness and God showed up in a still small voice. Even David, the great king, he knew what it was like to be abandoned in the wilderness when his enemies wanted his neck. But God showed up in the wilderness for these men, just like he did for Jacob. Why? That's what he does. God shows up in the wilderness. If your life is submitted to the lordship of Jesus, then you are an heir of the promise just like Jacob was. That's who he is. At this point in the story, who is Jacob? Let me tell you, Jacob is nobody, but he's an heir of the promise. He's an heir of the promise. Abraham's blood flows through Jacob's veins. He's an heir of the promise. He's nobody by himself, but he's an heir of the promise. And God shows up in the wilderness, in the lives of his heirs. That means that no matter how you got to the wilderness, God will show up in the wilderness for you too. And God doesn't show up just to show up. God doesn't show up because he thought you were lonely and you might like to set a spell. No, God shows up with an agenda. When God makes an appearance in the wilderness, it's because he has something specific to do and he has something specific to say. I hope that by now you recognize the words that God spoke to Jacob as we read them together a few moments ago. I hope that by now, if you've been with us, if you've been following the stories of Abraham and, by, and, and of Isaac, these words that God is speaking now to Jacob, I hope that they ring with familiarity. What did God just say to Jacob? What did we just read together? We read that God told Jacob that he was going to give him the land that he was sleeping in. He's saying this place is going to be your place. God promised to give Jacob a multitude of descendants. We've heard that before, haven't we? God said that he would protect Jacob no matter where he went. We've heard God say that before, haven't we? And God said that Jacob's life was going to be a life of godly purpose. That Jacob would be used to bring God's blessing to all people on earth. Now we've 
We've heard that before, haven't we? God's words to Jacob in the middle of the wilderness were nothing more and nothing less than an echo of the promises that God had first made to Grandpa Abraham and to Father Isaac. God shows up in the wilderness of our lives, but not just to watch us and not just to condemn us. No, heirs of the promise can be confident that God renews his promises in the wilderness. God renews his promises in the wilderness. Think about all the people. Think about all the people that at this point in Jacob's life had already spoken into Jacob's life. The power of words, right? How many of us ever said, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That is the most foolish thing I've ever heard in my life because we know better than that, don't we? We know that words hurt and we, the people of God, know that words bless as well. Words empower, words are important. Think about all the people who had already spoken their words into Jacob's life at this point. Esau, his brother, he said that Jacob was a liar and a cheat who deserved to be killed. And Isaac, his father, said that Jacob was a disappointment who didn't even deserve the family blessing. And, and Rebekah, his mother, she thought that Jacob was her precious little boy who could just do no wrong. Each of, things, each of them had said things to Jacob throughout the years about what his life meant what kind of a person he was, and where he was headed in life. And most of it was not very flattering. Can I say this? None of it was spiritually helpful. None of it was spiritually helpful. They had called him names. Even his given name, do we remember that part of the story? Even Jacob's given name was a, a pun for the word heal. He got it because when, when his mom delivered the twin boys, Jacob was holding on to his brother's heel. But that name had come to represent so much more than that. It had become to represent his habit of reaching out and tripping others up. His habit of lying and cheating to get what he wanted. His habit of making things more difficult for his family. That's what Jacob meant. His own father had tried to withhold the traditional blessing. The traditional family blessing, Isaac wanted to withhold it from Jacob. Apparently, Isaac, even in his old age, couldn't bring himself to say something nice about his own son. And even Jacob's mother, oh, even Rebecca, the one person in the family who supposedly loved him, the best thing she could say at this point was, you know what, son, you better run away from home because I, thought, I don't think anybody can fix the mess you've made. That's what love looked like in Jacob's home. You better run away because I don't think anybody can fix the mess you've made. Have you heard words like that in your own life? Have you heard words that blame and ridicule and belittle? Have you heard words that discourage and threaten and destroy? Because those were the words that were being spoken into Jacob's life. But God, but God had something different to say. And where did he choose to say it? Oh, he said it in the wilderness. He chose the wilderness as the place when he was going to have his word on Jacob's life. You see, too often, the words of men and women drive us into the wilderness. We might want to blame God for those wilderness experiences in our lives, but he's not the one who lied to us. It's not his voice that called you worthless and useless. Never has God said, you've made too big of a mess, nothing can be done, you better run away. Now, if you find yourself in a wilderness, I'm willing to bet you've been driven there by the lies of your enemy, not by the promises of God. 
But take heart. Because God shows up in the wilderness. And he speaks his promises over his people. Where? In the wilderness. Do you want to know who you are to him? Perhaps the wilderness is the perfect place to find out. Have you lost sight of your God-given purpose? Take heart. The wilderness is the ideal location to be reminded. See, church, we should not disparage the wilderness seasons of our lives because God is using them to shape us, to form us, and to prepare us for the life that he created us to live. Who could know better how important it is to be fed other than the hungry wilderness traveler? Who better understands the importance of water to a thirsty throat than the one who has slept in the dryness of the desert? Who better to listen to God's voice than the one who has yearned to hear it again and again in the silence of the barren countryside? Oh, it might seem like the wilderness is the place where God is silent and his promises have run out, but don't fall for that lie. It was in the wilderness that God gave his people the law through Moses as he led them by a pillar of fire. It was in the wilderness that John the Baptist proclaimed the words of God to a generation in need of repentance. And it was in the wilderness that God sent angels to minister even to Jesus himself after 40 days of fasting and spiritual wrestling match with Satan. The wilderness does not mark the end of God's promises. The wilderness is only the beginning. Let's hear the end of the story. Picking up where we left off in Genesis chapter 28, verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. But he was also afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. It's none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. The next morning, Jacob got up very early. He took the stone that he had rested his head against, and he set it upright as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive oil all over it. He named that place Bethel, or Bethel, the house of God, although it was previously called Luz. Then Jacob made this vow, if God will indeed be with me, And protect me on this journey. And if he will provide me with food and clothing. And if I return safely to my father's home. Then the Lord will certainly be my God. And this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place for worshiping God. And I will present to God a tenth of everything that he gives me. Can I clarify part of what Jacob said there? I think we heard him in the English say, well, if God does all of these things, then, then I will do that. Jacob isn't setting a condition saying, well, I guess God, if you do the following things, if you give me a million dollars and the job I want, and I get to go on a date with that really good looking person, right, then I guess I'll give you thanks. That's not what Jacob is saying here. Jacob is recognizing the word. He's not saying anything God hasn't already said. God has spoken these promises over Jacob. And Jacob's saying, well, if that's the case, what what could I possibly do but worship you? What could I possibly do but serve you? Jacob's not giving conditions for his faith or for his commitment. He's responding to the word of God. This is a turning point in Jacob's spiritual life. 
Because prior to this point, it seems to me that Jacob was not a highly religious man. As we said, he, I'm sure, knew about the, the faith and the commitment that Grandpa Abraham and Grandpa Sarah had had. And he knew that his dad, Isaac, had also made a commitment to, to God, although there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that Isaac was extremely devout. But Jacob, Jacob wasn't committed to his faith at all. For him, I think religion was something that the elders and the family took seriously, but he just hadn't made up his mind yet until the wilderness. In the wilderness, God showed up and declared his promises over Jacob's life. And Jacob took note. Jacob says, I, I thought this was just a wilderness rest stop on my journey. But this is God's house. Who, who'd have thunk it? Jacob says, who would believe that I could have found God here? And not just that I found him, but he's got a staircase here. This is his house. But he has mixed feelings about that, doesn't he? He's in awe, but he's also afraid. But he decides to mark the spot with a memorial stone because this is not going to be Jacob's last journey through the wilderness, either literally or metaphorically. He'll come back this way again, and when he does, he'll remember, this is God's house. This is God's house. And in God's house, Jacob takes stock of God's words. And in essence, he says, well, if what God has said is true, then there's really nothing I can do but to serve him. Does that sound like your moment of faith as well? If what God has said is true, what else could I do? What else could I do? If God's word is true, how could I do anything but to serve him? The wilderness encounter is the moment when Jacob commits his life to God for the very first time. And God wants to make sure Jacob never forgets it. Write this in your notes. God puts landmarks in the wilderness. God puts landmarks in the wilderness. The wilderness is not a place to escape from and forget. Wilderness seasons in our lives can be painful but by the grace of God, they can also be purposeful. God wants us to remember the wilderness. God wants us to remember the clarity and the conviction with which we first chose to serve him. Never ever leave the wilderness without first asking for God's help in putting up a landmark. Make an altar in the wilderness. Erect a memorial. The wilderness has meaning in your life. And chances are, just like Jacob, you're not there for the last time. The altars that God helps you build in the wilderness stand as reminders to you and to your heirs. Reminders of God's promises. Build an altar with God's help in the wilderness. Well, how do we do that? How do we build an altar in the wilderness? However you want, really. However you want. Jacob literally took a rock, stood it up on end, and poured some olive oil over it. If he'd had tomato and mozzarella, he could have made a fine caprese salad. But that wasn't his purpose. He took what he had, he took what he had, and he made a memorial stone. 
something that he would remember. So how do you want to make an altar? Well, maybe it is a physical object. I was talking to a member of our church family on the phone this week who was telling me about the house that they had bought several years ago. She said, I always wanted a gazebo. And we were looking for a new house. We found one in our budget that had a gazebo in the backyard. She said, every day I sit on my porch and I pray and I look at my gazebo and it reminds me that God hears our prayers. Could God take a backyard ornament and use it as an altar in your life? Every time I see it, I remember that God hears our prayers. Maybe it's not a physical object. Maybe it's a verse that you stand on. I remember a wilderness period in my life when I was a college student. Things were dry. I was depressed and disappointed. And I opened the Bible and I read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 30, verse 15. It said, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is in your strength. See, I thought my life was in my hands and I was frustrated that things weren't working out too well. I was trying to be as busy as I could, do as much work as I could because I thought it was up to me. And God gave me one verse to stand on. He said, Dan, slow down. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. It's a teeny tiny verse in the middle of the book of Isaiah. I can't say that I happen upon it as often as John 3.16. But when I do, but when I do, it's a memorial for me. It's an altar for me. It's a landmark that reminds me. So maybe you've got a verse. Maybe it's a song. Pick a favorite song. I was having a conversation a couple years ago with a pastor friend of mine who was going through a very, very difficult time. And he'd said that he had heard on the radio several times in a row the song, he's been faithful, faithful indeed. And he heard that song and he said, every time I hear that song, I'm reminded, no matter how bad it seems right now, God is faithful. And so years beyond his wilderness experience, he's still got an altar. He's still got a memorial. He's still got a landmark to remind him, oh, God is faithful. God is faithful. Maybe it's a physical object. Maybe it's a verse. Maybe it's song. Maybe it's an entry in your journal. Maybe it's something that you read again and again. Maybe it's a note on your computer monitor or on your Bible's front cover or on your refrigerator's front cover. You want to remember something, put it in the one you open the most often. Thank you. Whatever you do, ask for God's help in designing a landmark that will last throughout the generations because that's what God does. Don't disparage the wilderness. Don't disparage the wilderness. That's where God speaks his promises. That's where God helps us put landmarks. That's where he helps us put altars that will tell the story of his goodness and his faithfulness and his promises to a thousand generations. Because when you pass this way again, you'll remember. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and they're going to help close us with a song today. And I want to do this specifically because as you consider, where are the, where are the landmarks in your spiritual life? Where are they? What are, what are the stones like Jacob had, anointed with oil? Where are those things in your life that, that, that say, this is the spot where, where I met God? 
This is the spot where he reminded me of his goodness. This is the spot where I overcame this, that, or the other thing. Can I tell you, I hope you have those places. I hope you have those altars. I hope you have those reminders all over your life. But I think your church ought to be one of those places. There's nothing particularly special, sacred, or anointed about the beams and pillars that make up this room. But I hope that for you, this room has become a true sanctuary. And I think a church is supposed to be a place where we build some altars. We talk about altars, it's usually the, the, just the front steps, the place right down at the front. We don't have particularly fancy altars in this room, but sometimes we come and we gather for prayer right here. For those of you that have some miles clicked off on your spiritual odometers, you've served the Lord a lot of years. Can you remember where you were when you prayed that prayer? Can you remember where you were when you received that anointing? Can you remember the physical place you were when God gave you that word? That's a special place. When Jacob had his dream, he said, surely God is in this place. It inspired the words of this old chorus that we're gonna sing together. I remember singing it when I was a little boy. A lot of you will probably remember it. And if you don't, it's simple enough. You'll figure it out. But I wanna believe by faith that we could all say, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place, is in this place. That's why I came today, Lord. That's why I came. We're going to sing this song together a handful of times as we close the service today. I want to invite everybody to stand. And I'm going to ask you this. If you're in a wilderness right now in your spiritual life, If you're maybe not necessarily in a wilderness, but you're in a place where you're saying, you know what, I think it's time to put up a landmark. Because I think I've heard God's voice. I think I've seen God. I think I've recognized something he's trying to show me, whatever it might be. As we sing this song, can I invite you to physically move towards the front? Come to the altar. You don't have to be here long. It could be if you like but come here just long enough to tell the Lord, I'm going to build an altar. Maybe it'll be right here on this carpet square. Maybe it'll be back there on this one. But I'm going to come forward and I'm going to say, this is the spot. So that every time I come into this church building, whether I'm high or whether I'm low, I can say, I know that God answered my prayer right there. That was the place. I think there's a few people in this room that need to do that today. And I want to give you time. So church, we're going to sing. And I would invite you to come forward. Just do whatever you need to do to to make an altar. I'll I'll come and pray with you. I think somebody else would, if they saw you praying alone, just put a hand on you and say, "This, this this is Sherry's altar, right?
somebody here that you just want to come alongside and encourage today. I'm sure they wouldn't mind if you snuck up behind them and put your hand on their shoulder and just help them build their altar. If you still want to come and pray, you can do that as well. Come and build an altar. Come and say, yeah, it might be, it might, it might be the wilderness, but God's speaking to me here today. God's doing something new in my life. God has a plan for me. God's words matter for me. And can that happen where you're seated? Of course it can. But I want to ask you today to come build an altar. We're going to sing once or twice more. Surely. would be known. I pray, God, that you would show up for us in ways that we recognize, in ways that renew and strengthen us. I thank you, Lord, for a people who are a hungry and a thirsty wilderness people. Lord, our legacy, our legacy is, is not only on the mountaintop, it's found in the wilderness as well. And so meet with us here, meet with us here, we pray. I pray, Lord, that you would sanctify these altars as they are built. I pray that you would bless the builders as they labor. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage the discouraged, that you would heal the brokenhearted, and that you would come with your power. We thank you for this today in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. I want to give some instructions. The altars are open. I think the band will continue to play another tune or two or three, whatever we need. You can continue to come and pray. If you're going to be dismissed, you can do that when I ask you to the foyers, share fellowship and laughter there so that we can continue to build. May God bless you. Hallelujah.